This is How I Got Here, a podcast where we interview professionals about how they navigated the twists and turns of their careers. We hope these conversations can help you figure out where you want to go and how you'll get there. We're your hosts. I'm Lara Mitra. And I'm Eric Eliason. In each episode, we'll first give you a quick intro about who we are speaking with, and then we'll dive into the interview. To stay up to date, follow How I Got Here on LinkedIn and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. We hope you enjoy. Lorraine Vargas Townsend is a survivor. She survived growing up in a town where she didn't always feel welcome as a Latina and a lesbian. She survived cancer twice, including during her first year in college. These experiences fueled an activism in Lorraine, a desire to stand up for the underdog, which she's made the single-handed focus of her career. As an HR professional at Dell, a cloud guru, where she's the chief people guru today, and more, Lorraine has made it her life mission to fix as many companies as she can, to ensure that everyone, no matter their race, gender, or sexual orientation, is treated with dignity and respect in the workplace. Hey everybody, I'm Lorraine Vargas Townsend. I'm the chief people guru at A Cloud Guru. So we wanted to understand, like, what was it like growing up in Texas? Did you like it? What did you do for hobbies, fun, things like that? It was horrible. So I grew up in Round Rock. It's just a, it's a suburb of Austin, basically. But the slogan for Round Rock was the renowned Round Rock school districts. And that actually meant the not integrated Round Rock Mm. school districts. And so when Austin... ISD was working hard to, you know, move forward integration probably in the 60s, I guess. All the white people who didn't want their kids to go to school with Hispanic families or Black families moved to Round Rock. And that became like their pride cornerstone. And I mean, it it turned into like great school districts, sure. But as a Latina with a mom who's very obviously Hispanic, growing up and watching the way that my family was treated and then coming out as a lesbian at 15, um, I wasn't very welcome in Round Rock, Texas. Um, I actually had high school teachers who would like go like, there's the lesbian. And like, oh when I was walking down the hall. So I dropped out at 15 and they didn't try to keep me. It wasn't like a truant officer came to ask me why I was not there or like, it was pretty much like good riddance on both sides. Yeah. And definitely want to hear more about the decision to drop out, but maybe before we we get there, we know your mom had a big influence on your career and and you just mentioned her as well. Could you tell us a little bit more about her and, and what she imparted on you? And we read that you had a desire to become president of the United States one day, which is partly driven by her as well. Everything for me goes back to my mom. I grew up in a very religious family. And so I would say, actually, I'm very blessed that I was born into the family that I was born into for sure. But my mom was a single mom. She worked really, you know, menial jobs. But um, the biggest compliment that she gave us when we were kids was that we looked like college girls. So while everybody else was told how pretty they were, or, you know, whatever, how, how great they were at something for mom, it was just 100% like you look like you, you're a college girl. And so even when I dropped out of high school, I, I knew that I wasn't, that wasn't where my road was stopping. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because of my mom. And I think she really did put a lot of 
self-confidence into me and into my siblings. And there is really a lot that we believe we can do because we're in the greatest country, you know, because we have all the opportunity and we just have to grab, grab it. And because of our faith and the way that we were raised, um, I think all of those things combine together to kind of make the three of us pretty invincible. So yeah, I think we're really lucky that that we had landed with that lady. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And and to go back, what did she think of when when you ended up deciding to drop out? Was she aware or did, did you surprise that on her? I mean, let's just talk about being a lesbian in a Latina family. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's like, start there. <laughs> I mean, basically the gender roles are very ingrained. Mm. And so my mom was first of all worried that I was going to hell, but then secondly worried about like who was going to take care of me and my female partner because surely we couldn't survive without a man. So it was just like, but who's gonna, who's gonna take care of you? <laughs> um, so um, yeah, so I think that, that time of coming out, which then led to dropping out of high school, my mom dropped out of high school uh, too, but for different reasons, because English was her second language. She was in the Panama Canal zone and school was in English and she couldn't keep up. And I think for a moment, for a slight moment, she was worried that I was going to turn into her, that I was going to, you know, I think my first job was at Dairy Queen and I was working my ass off and I was working sometimes, you know, till two in the morning, like closing the store by myself, stuff like that. And she was like, oh no, like Mm -hmm. this can't be, this can't be the life Mm -hmm. that you're going to live. But I always knew, like, I would just kind of look at her and not give her the satisfaction of an answer, but I knew I was going to get my GED and I knew I was going to be in school soon enough. So yeah, I, I got my GED when I was, I think 16 or 17. I started going to Austin Community College with the intention to transfer to the University of Texas as soon as I could. But then I got diagnosed with bone cancer, uh, the same week I got my uh, results for my bone cancer, the same week I was accepted to the University of Texas. Oh my goodness. So I couldn't go to the University of Texas because I was going to Houston for um, the treatments that I was getting at MD Anderson. And I had to delay that. And I think that was the first time that I was actually afraid I wasn't going to finish school. But I don't know why I was afraid. Of course I was going to finish. But, <laughs> but I remember having those fears like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Because it was so much harder with bone cancer. I, I was in a wheelchair for almost a year. I had to you know, teach myself how to walk. I was going across campus. Once I finally started at the university, I was crossing campus on crutches. And I was 100 pounds overweight. Like crossing camp, campus for a skinny person is hard um, <laughs> on crutches, but, you know, uh, adding to that, it was really, it was really hard. Um, but I have made it through. Like, I think it's lucky I had all these hard tribulations early in my life because I learned really quickly how much, how strong I am and, and how far I can go if I just decide. Could you tell us a bit more about that? I mean, you're so young and this is such a, a tough experience that you're going through, but then you're going through it during this formative period and transition to college, which is hard enough, you know, without dealing with a major health issue. What was your mental state like at the time? And how did you keep your head up high? I didn't at first. It's hard 
So you have this like moment when you're 18, it happens, I think, to every American anyway, I don't know, uh, when you turn 18 and you go like, I'm an adult, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. you're like, I'm an adult. And so I was at the MD, at, at MD Anderson, the, you know, one of the best cancer centers in the world. I had the surgeon who was like this military guy who was like 70 years old. And he brought out all of my rebellious spirit against like authority and like, you know, kind of, I, he was, he represented everything that was not me. Mm-hmm. And so he, I didn't like him. I was really scared. I wouldn't let my mom in the room because I was like, I'm an adult. And I had a girlfriend at the time and to fuck with the surgeon, I brought her into every appointment. And like, so it was like two ding dongs talking to a serious oncologist who saved my life, but I was too stupid in that time of my life to actually I don't know, to be a partner with him in my treatment. And so it was a bit of rebellious and a bit of victim mentality that I was really going through. And so I don't know how I, I don't know how, (laughs) but I can tell you that it was part of a divine plan because I got cancer again. Um, I'm a two-time cancer survivor. And my, my second cancer was unrelated to bone cancer Um, and I was already in my twenties. Uh, but when I got cancer for the second time, I was so much smarter. I was so much more mature. I knew that I had to make a choice to fight, um, and that it was a partnership and that I had a voice in the say of my treatment. Um, and so it wasn't about proving myself or pushing my mom out of the room. It was like getting people around me who could help me and using my medical team that way. So thank God I went through it the first time. So I knew how to deal with it the second time. (laughs) And going through being bullied, dropping out of high school, getting cancer twice. How are you even thinking about your career during this time? What did you aspire towards and and what did you want to be? Yeah, I mean, I still wanted to be the president. Like, I, <laughs> um, I mean, look, when you come out at a young age, you turn into an activist. It, it just happens that way. But especially back then, right? Back then, it was illegal to be gay. There were sodomy laws in Texas. I, there probably still are. I don't know. Uh, it was a subculture that I was a part of. Now, when you look at Austin, it's like, oh, everybody has like 25 gay friends and like gay people don't have to stick together anymore. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just kind of Mm -hmm. like, it is what it is. But back then, like I had to put on a flannel shirt and wear a baseball cap and be like, I'm a dyke. Like, (laughs) like, (laughs) you know, like I had to put myself into this box Mm -hmm. and then that box was my safety net to get through university. And so while I was going to school, of course, I was writing papers about the Defense of Marriage Act. And I took classes from Sarah Weddington, who, you know, uh, argued Roe versus Wade in front of the Supreme Court, right? Like, I was finding like the people with the voices around, around those topics that I cared about. And at the same time, I was in these classes with the guys who were like working on George Bush's campaign. Um, and who had all the privilege. And 
including all the sponsorship from every professor, including the ability to get every kind of internship that they wanted or every kind of connection that they wanted. And I always found myself on the outside of it, just going like, I don't even know how to tap into that. Mm -hmm. And then when you're the first generation kid of an immigrant who doesn't have that experience either, you actually don't have people to go ask these questions to. And so I just remember kind of that weird feeling of going like, oh, I picked this thing. I know that I can make a difference. I know that I need to do this, but I don't know how to break in. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I could not find any kind of entry point really. What were you trying um, to break into? I don't know, like something that could help me change the world, like something for, you know, so what I found was the Texas State Democratic Party and the Travis County Democratic Party. I did internships with them um, in my last semester uh, at school. And that was when the harsh reality hit me that politics wasn't really about helping anyone. Mm. That's how it felt, right? Like everything was about the lobbyists. Everything was about like the connections. And the only thing that the parties wanted to talk to me about was fundraising. Like no one actually cared about my ideas about like what we needed to be doing because I was like a young person. Like, again, it was just like, where's my voice? Where's my voice? I don't know. So is that when you decided to transition into HR? I, so it was like, you know, the late nineties, I had graduated. I did some interviews. I knew I didn't want to work for the democratic party. I didn't want to work for the state of Texas because I wanted to make money. Like money was a motivator for me because I wanted to take care of my family. Like that's Uh, I think also another kind of common first generation dream is like, you want to take care of your parents. You want to figure out how to give back. And so I was just like, I need to make money and I need to make a difference. And uh, my sister was working at Dell in uh, talent acquisition. She got me a job there. Like I was a temp uh, and I got a job doing like the worst HR work that's like, you know, background checks and like data Mm. entry for like people's salary changes. Um, And then here I am, right? Like all, I, I never thought I would stay in HR that long. I never meant to for almost the entire time I've been HR, I've done nothing but complain about it. So what's kept you in HR then? I guess that I was good at moving up. I, right. Like, I guess I'm good at selling my ideas. So after Dell, um, I ended up working at Schneider Electric. I put on my sales hat from the very first interview. Basically, I figured out that Schneider Electric was a global company and I wanted to work in Spain. Like, I cannot tell you how much I wanted to work in Spain. And it was basically out of sibling rivalry. Like my sister had done a semester abroad and her Spanish came back better than mine. And she was doing all the while she was speaking Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) I was so jealous. And so when I realized that Schneider was a big international company, I went in to get the job. So like I uh, interviewed, I, I went in to interview and I brought a recruiting plan. Like I'd done all this research about like their jobs and their time to fill and how slow they were at filling their engineering roles. And I just kind of came in and said like, here's the five things you need to do knowing that there's no way you wouldn't hire me after I did that. And, and so they did. And then as soon as I started, I was like, I want a job in Spain. I want a job in Spain. I want a job in Spain. 
And they were like, we don't send HR people to uh, roles abroad. And I was like, oh, that's nonsense. Of course you will. So I just, you're just obviously not the right person for me to talk to, you know? And so I just, I don't know, I'm very persistent. Um, (laughs) So after about a year on the job there, I got selected for this executive development program. And at the end of it, like I met every person in the room and I was like, my name is Lorraine Vargas Townsend. I do HR. I want to do a job. I want a job in Spain. Can you help me get there? And basically everyone was like, oh, like, who's this girl? Like, but I went home and like six months later, they called me and asked me to lead executive development. And they were like, look, it's in Paris. It's not in Spain. Will you accept that? So, I mean, yeah, of course. So <laughs> I came back speaking French and my did not speak French. <laughs> it sounds like, I mean, you mentioned you're persistent, but not only does this take persistence, it takes quite a bit of confidence, right? To tell people what your goals and, and dreams are, even say them out loud and say, this is where I want to go. Can you help me get there? Yeah. Where did that confidence come from for you? And has it, have you always sort of had it or is it something you've grown to develop over the course of your career? No, it's back to the first question. And I got it from my mama. I mean, I think that, um, you know, that started so young. That started from birth, I think, in our home. She was not one of the people who like, she'd never criticized. She, well, that's not true. If we got anything less than a 100 on our report cards, she didn't just criticize, she beat the crap out of us. So (laughs) she pushed us really hard. She had really hard, high expectations, but also like whatever we did, she just reinforced how amazing we were. Um, Even to this day, I love taking my mom to work to see like what I do or whatever, but every, I know that every time she meets someone, she basically says like, aren't you so lucky that you get to work with my daughter? Like, <laughs> isn't she amazing? And she just like, that voice is always here. I never suffered from a self-esteem problem and it is a strength, but it is also a flaw. Like, I don't always notice when it's too much <laughs> or when I'm like over the top or, um, you know, when I'm like overwhelming people. So uh, as I get older, I start to be able a bit to read the room more and be like, okay, like just button it up a little bit. Plus I have my wife who is always like, like take it down like 10 notches. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's amazing. And, and to, to relate this, to go back to the HR point, you know, we know you've been kind of a, uh, Uh, a critic from within, within HR. And we know that you've kind of, um, you know, had some thoughts about how we should rethink about the way that we even talk about what HR is and what uh, the role of this function is. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, what your view is of HR and what good HR looks like. If you go back to like through the history of HR, like we started out with a really noble purpose. It was to keep well, was it noble? We were trying to keep your kids from dying at work because in the industrial revolution, we had child labor. So, so it was like workplace safety. It was like, like, that's where we got started. Right. Then it moved on to like, uh, world war one and world war two, where we were focused on like recruiting different profiles and keeping people motivated because in between world war one and world war two was the great depression. And it was like, how much more could this 
you know, these generations of workers actually take. But we had like all good work to do there, work that was really people-centric and taking care of, of folks when the government failed or when there was war, um, right? All that's good stuff. But then, um, you know, it shifted when the world was focused on like social revolution, like think of like MLK and like, you know, all the kind of change that was happening around race. That was HR's perfect moment to continue with our mission of being focused on people and for us to stand up and say, mm. we're going to give Black people equal access to careers. We're going to make sure that, you know, society and work reflect each other. And we didn't. We as a profession in that moment, we took the shift towards compliance and we started to basically say like, oh, did you clock in and out before you went to that protest? I mean, that's basically what it feels like, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so in like the 80s and the 90s, when I got started, it was really like these tired HR professionals saying like, we want a seat at the table. Like, and what that really turned into was like, we'll say yes and enable all of your oppressive and shitty behavior. And I think everything started to catch on fire around the Me Too movement. And then it started to relax until George Floyd got murdered. And you know what? It's in danger of relaxing again because everybody's focused on COVID and working from home and people aren't talking about racism right this second. It feels like, or it feels like it's getting quieter. And this next generation of HR people cannot let that happen. And we do have to systematically look at the processes that we, you know, not only enable, but that we push forward and say are strategic that are actually just bullshit um, processes that are part of, you know, part of oppression. Like for instance, nine boxes, um, labeling people as low, medium and high potential. And guess who always ends up in the high potential box, right? Like it's the same guy over and over again. And, you know, I'm tired of watching that stuff. I, I think there's just so much that we could be doing as a profession and we have to be brave and we have to be persistent and we have to quit when it's not gonna work. Like we can't sit somewhere and continue to enable it or be silent or not have our voice heard mm. um, because then it's also our fault. So I think it's just like getting brave. That's the next generation of HR. I'm wondering, yeah, Lorraine, how do you think about it? It's like when you, I was going to ask you, how do you go about, you know, in this role of HR, it's not seen as sometimes, I think traditionally as like having a seat at the table. Now you're seeing that more, but when you can't get something done in the way that you want to, I was wondering how you deal with it. It sounds like if, if, if there's really no room for a conversation, it does, it actually comes at that being brave and having a personal career cost, which is like quitting potentially. I think there has to be things you're willing to put your badge on the table for, right? So I think there's that. But of course, there's ways that you can bring people with you, right? One of my favorite things to do when I have worked at places that were less than people-centric is announcing my people and culture strategy to the workforce instead of to the leaders. I call it letting the toothpaste out of the tube strategy. Um, <laughs> and so I think I am really like at a place in my career, look, I'm, I'm going to be 45, you know, next year. Like I'm at a place where I'm just like, you know what? It's not worth it. Like if, if they're, I can't change a company's culture all by myself. Mm -hmm. And if they have practices that they aren't willing to reflect on, 
if they have systems that they're not willing to dismantle that I think are not bringing everybody forward or driving inclusion um, and equity, then I just can't waste my time there. I mean, but I've earned that position, right? Like I am, like I said, 45, I have money in the bank. I, you know, have worked my way up through my career. And so I think you have to work hard to get to that point. Mm -hmm. And going back to something you said earlier about, you know, you have to know when you should put your badge on the table. I really like that because it it just speaks to how you should have these like defined principles and values that you stand for, right? And I'm curious, what are yours? I mean, I think it does kind of boil down to like respect and human dignity. And I learned in like, I learned early in my career what it looks like when that's absent, you know? I had bosses who I felt like really, like to this day, like even looking back on it, you know, years later, I can only assess it as that they didn't like me as a person and they didn't treat me with respect. God, I always go back to my mom, but you know, my mom looks exactly like me, like we're twins, except that she's brown and I'm white. And I remember being at her grocery store one day and there was a lady beside me. And so when I wanted to talk to my mom, uh, when I was young, I would go to the grocery store and I would take a number. Um, she worked at the deli. So I'd take a number and then I'd wait in line for my time at the deli. And then I'd be like, mom, come over here. Like, I want to talk to you real quick. And so I remember just standing there with my number and this lady is like beside me and she's so frustrated. Like my mom was like a super talker. She's a super talker like me. Um, <laughs> and she, you know, talked to every customer. She talked to them about like what they were doing with the meat and the cheese that they were buying and like who they were serving to. And then they, she would give them tons of recommendations. And this lady beside me was really in a hurry and she was just getting so impatient. And I was just like, ah, I always like watched out for that because I was always afraid I was going to get into a fight. <laughs> and, On behalf uh, of your mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so this lady, like ine inevitably I did get into fights, but this lady I remember the most because she looked over at me like she was going to conspire with me. And she's like, ugh, these lazy Mexicans. And I was just like, what? Is it happening? Oh my God, it's happening. And I just remember like feeling like my blood coming from my feet but coming like straight up and she just kept going. And I honestly don't know what she was saying after I, after Mexicans, I didn't know what she said, but I turned to her and I put my hands on her basket and I start pushing her away from the deli, like with her cart. And she's like, you know, doesn't know what's happening. And I'm like, bitch, you better run. That's my mama. <laughs> <laughs> she literally ran out of the grocery store and I just sat in my car in the parking lot going like, God, I'm so tired of this. Like every single place we go to, you know, cops pulling my mom over when she's driving at night, like people pretending like they can't understand what she's saying when she speaks perfectly good English, like just so much that I just, I can't bear it when I see it at work. I can't bear it. And it's, for me, it's about race, it's about gender, it's about queer folks, it's about every single person, even white guys, 
who are being treated without dignity, without respect. And I feel like it's just my station in life that I have to fight for them. And I have to do it loud and visible so that I can fix work before my four-year-old daughter turns 18, because that's my mission. I have to fix as much work as possible, as many companies as I can. And in pursuing that life mission, you worked in HR at a variety of different companies. And I'm wondering, as you've made the transition from one company to the next, what factors are you weighing that make you decide, you know, I want to join one place over another? It's different every time. So one of my jumps was 100% for money. So I was paid 46 or 48% of what my white male counterparts were paid at, at a company. And you can't hide that from HR people. Like, <laughs> right. We can actually see it. And when I went to talk to my boss, you know, he was full of excuses. I went to talk to, well, just like everything, I talked to everyone until I get the answer that I want. And like, they wouldn't budge. And um, well, they would, they were just giving me like 12% increases, which I was supposed to be grateful for, like 12% here, 17% there, whatever, which great, like maybe your average person would be happy, but when you're paid 48% less, it doesn't matter. Like you can take your 12% and stick it like where the sun doesn't shine, basically. Um, and so I, I moved from that company out of desperation, I had gone out and gotten job offers. I got two job offers. One of them double, doubled my salary. And I did not want to take that job offer. Um, and I went back to the company and I was like, look, you guys have invested in me a lot. You've done all these things. I love this company. And you love me. Like, I know you love me. Um, but now I have a job offer that's doubling my salary. Please, like, fix it. And instead they offered me like the best job that I always wanted. Like they offered me the, the job with the scope that I wanted, like the level that I wanted with another like dumb raise that was not doubling my salary and I had to quit. And so that was the most painful move. And the company that I went to was a horrible match for me, but they paid me yeah. and that's why I moved. Um, <laughs> so, um, so that was a move. Um, I made every other move thinking that I was going to get back to Austin. I, I grew a lot of my career by always being the person who said yes to move. Like if you need someone to go somewhere else, I'll do it. But then I had my daughter, um, or I was like in the midst of getting pregnant and all that stuff, which is really like a huge process when you're a lesbian. But, um, basically, uh, it was really all these moves have mostly been thinking like, I'll get back to Austin this way. Ultimately, those different transitions you made led you to a cloud guru, where you're the chief people guru today. What was the story of why you joined this company? You know, I spoke to our CEO in the interview process, and I told him like, look, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Texas wants to fight marriage equality. I don't know if it's safe to take my family back to Texas. And the way he got me to say yes to join the company was that he said, Lorraine, your psychological and physical safety matters more to me than anything else. And I went like, oh my God, there's a CEO that talks like that. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's the minute I knew I was going to work for a cloud guru. They are the most inclusive company I've ever seen. They're like the company I've always dreamt of. And so 
I feel like I'm at this place now where I know I'm going to achieve all the things because there's a board, an executive team. There's three women on the executive team. I've never had that before. And their whole mission is about giving people access to different careers through education. And so it's all about changing, you know, this, the whole Brotopia idea and just programmers to like, everybody can be in tech jobs. So I've never worked at a company where my mission at work was so 100% exactly my same mission in life. So I guess I'm staying at this one forever. Lorraine, I'm wondering, you know, as we talk through your whole career, it sounds like you've found this mission that you really, uh, you know, it's personal and, and work that are combined. And now you're at this company that's such a great fit and you've had so much success throughout. And I'm wondering, how do you go about defining what a successful career is? And do you think you've already achieved it yet? Or are you still on your way? I mean, I, my measurement of success was that I made enough money to take care of my mom. That was the goal. And I will say, check that's, that's done. Um, you know, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, but now I feel like my objective is so much bigger than my career. It's your career. It's everybody else's career. Um, and I don't think that work will ever be done. Um, And I think if I really felt like I was successful, um, it would be that like Kamala Harris will call me and ask me to serve on some, you know, board for the United States to help redefine what work is. Or, you know, like, I don't know. It it, it will have to be something that um, I'm gonna work tirelessly to keep changing every company and talking to as many people as possible, HR people and regular people, so that regular people feel like, hey, I should be demanding more from my company and that HR people can start to ask themselves, how do we put people back at the center of what we're doing? Um, So I think I'll never be done with that. I I hope I will be, but I doubt it. (laughs) You can check out more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter at howigotherepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.